We are in our last week of 40 days of prayer, so uh, those of you who might be joining us live or uh, maybe you're watching or listening to this later on, which I know we do have some people who watch it later on or listen to it later on, um, we are on all the podcast platforms if that's your thing. Um, In any of those scenarios, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad you're here in the room. I'm glad you're watching online. I'm glad you're watching later on if it's not uh, February, what is today, the 6th, February 6th, and um, we are just in these last six weeks, reawakening to different aspects of walking with Jesus together as a church family. And so we're doing that in conjunction with, alongside of, our Greater Alliance family. And so this has been 40 days of prayer in which we take the six Sundays in those 40 days to emphasize these themes. And so that's what we've been doing. And so today's final theme in this 40 days of prayer is uh, reawakening to the return of Christ. Now, this is uh, one of the closest to the fourfold gospel uh, sort of ideas that uh, is in this 40 days, in these six weeks. And so we're reawakening to the return of Christ, our coming king, right, would be the way we would say it. Now, I do want to say also, there's a few days left in this 40 days of prayer. Maybe you're like, oh man, I missed all 40 days, I didn't do the devotionals. Well, you know what, there's still like five days left. So just start, just do something, jump in. And there is on Thursday night, which is day 40, Uh, There will be an online night of prayer and worship uh, that you can sign up for, participate in online. I sent that out this week. Uh, There was a a link in in the email this week, so you can find that. Um, But as we said, we're going to wrap this series up by talking about the return of Christ. And this is important to us, as I said, because this is one of the central themes of sort of being an alliance church. The reality that Jesus is going to return to make all things new, set up his kingdom, uh, as the ancient creed says, to judge the living and the dead, right? All of that stuff is not negotiable in the Christian faith. Now, the way that's going to happen and the sequence of events, that's all up for grabs. Uh, This idea of whether or not Jesus is going to return is what we would say is in the closed hand of doctrine or theology. He is going to return and it's going to be soon. Uh, I used to have a student, um, a volunteer in my student ministry who was like a co-worker with me, and uh, he would do this exercise with the teens where he would put a, a minute up on the board and he would say, all right, I want you to do whatever this project, you know, he'd give them some assignment to do, and he'd put a minute up on the board, and then at like a random time left, like 25 seconds left, 10 seconds left, he'd say, all right, never mind, time up. And they'd go, wait a minute, and he would tell them, you never have as much time as you think. And it's always going to be sooner than you thought it would be. And so the return of Christ is a way for us to be patient and yet urgent, looking for the return of Christ. And so uh, that idea is in the closed hand. Now, how it's going to happen, when specifically it's going to happen, is most certainly in the open hand. We have lots of different ideas. Even within the alliance, we can have different interpretations of how that's going to work and still hold to the truth that Jesus will return. And so there are all kinds of people who love Jesus, who obey his commands, walk with him as disciples, and they differ strongly on the nuances of how and when the return of Jesus will happen, but they agree that it will happen. So it's not my goal to persuade you to one of those views or the other, Uh, although if you're interested, we do have a a, a way that we think about it in the Alliance, Uh, and so I'm happy to teach you what that is, because that's what I hold to as well. Uh, But I think debating these things in a spiritually mature way that honors one another is a great exercise. If you can do that in a way that honors one another uh, and and have just a debate over the way you interpret something that's a second-handed issue, man, that's a great way to dig into the Bible and theology. And so 
that's not my goal for today, though. I don't want to debate you from here. That's not, that's not what we're doing. And so in the Alliance, we believe in what we call the premillennial view of the end times. And there's nuance with that as well. But the point of today is just to reawaken us to the reality of the return of Christ. How should we think about it? And so here's a shameless plug, side note kind of thing. Uh, we're working on classes for springtime. Bob and I have met and we're working on those. And a few of you have said that you're interested in end times uh, things. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't filled out that survey, uh, please fill that out so that uh, me and Bob can know who is going to be, uh, who's interested in what, and we're going to be co-teaching. The format is going to kind of hopefully be more of a, uh, the two of us sitting at a table together, having kind of a discussion with some people in the room and maybe some people online interacting and, and kind of doing it more discussion-based. And we want to cover some of those things that we have, a lot, all of us have questions about. Uh, and so Bob is a scholar, I'm a pastor, and we're going to do our best. And so uh, that's what we're working on. And so uh, I was thinking as I was preparing this, maybe we'll have the night of the millenniums, and we'll just cover all that, all that stuff and talk about it. But for today, here's three questions I want to work towards. What do we do with end time stuff? What do we do with the predictions that we see or the, the language that we see in the Bible? Who is the King Jesus that's going to return? What does the Bible portray him as, at least poetically? And then how do we live in light of that, right? The classic, uh, how then should we live um, idea that Francis Schaeffer wrote a book about. So let me pray, and then we're going to dig in. Let me pray. Jesus, we now come to you, and we ask you to uh, sort of break the flow of events, even in this service that has happened up to this point, and focus our minds and our hearts on this idea. We know that uh, you have made us whole persons, and so we've, we've sung together, we have seen one another, which is how we, and, and we exercise our, our emotions together and the way we feel about things, and now we're just asking you to, to let us exercise our minds in the way that we think about w what we should do with these things in your word to us. We know that it's important because it's in there, and so we want to do the best we can with it to understand in the time we have together this morning. We ask, we ask again, all this would be for your glory, that in our lives this would glorify you, and that this would be uh, powerful to those around us. And we, and we do ask this in your mighty name. Amen. All right, so as Christians uh, who are coming at end times ideas through the lens of Jesus' return, what do we do with the stuff that's in the Bible about the end times? Because there's stuff in there that's weird, right? There's stuff in there you're like, what do I do with this? I don't understand. Uh, in my news and my internet feeds, it's kind of calmed down again recently, but some of that is because of things I've blocked and changed. But uh, for a while there, over the last couple of years, we were going a little bit nuts in the culture and in the world with an apocalypse, right? Everybody was saying, apocalypse, it's an apocalypse. And almost nobody used that word the actual way that that word is meant. But everything was like cataclysmic, apocalyptic. And so uh, a lot of us found ourselves, I get caught up in it too. I'm like, ooh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I should read this article, right? And we get caught up in that stuff, wondering if this thing is a sign of the end and what's going to happen next. And oh, oh no, and we're... We're biting our fingernails and, and, and in fear. And so people were doing all kinds of mental gymnastics, I would say, to try and prove that this or that was a sign of the end times and this thing is the mark of the beast and no, it's this thing and now it's this, right? And so they, um, many times I noticed, uh, especially unfortunately in the Christian realm, many of those people who were doing all of that also happened to be selling a book or something about it, right? And so that's what we've seen over the last couple of years. So, so what, though, are we supposed to do? Because we can't just say nothing. We believe that Jesus will return. And he taught some things about it. So, 
So what do we do? So I want to look at the book of Matthew, and we're going to learn the lesson of the fig tree for this. The lesson of the fig tree. Now, let me just preface this little section that I'm going to read by saying you should definitely read and study. Well, I'm going to tell you the whole book of Matthew, right, and the whole Bible. But this section of Matthew, particularly for this, because Jesus says a bunch of teaching here on this topic, a bunch of kind of prophetic words. But for this morning, I want to focus on Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 32 because Jesus gives us a really important uh, sort of way of seeing things. He gives us a lesson here and a message. So this is Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to start in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there's a lot there we could uh, take apart. Uh, first, the, the he, uh, he is near at the very gates. And in verse 33, Jesus referring to himself. He's referring to the Son of Man, that he's coming, right? Uh, and so uh, let, let's just kind of break the metaphor apart a little bit here. Right now, now there's there really isn't any specific significance to the fig tree. It's he's not saying anything about figs. Uh, it, it, I've seen teaching where the fig tree has some hidden cryptic meaning. Right, it's like uh, the Da Vinci Code of figs or something. But that's just not the case. What's happening is that Jesus is a brilliant teacher, and he's probably standing by a fig tree when he says this. And so he's like, learn the lesson from the water bottle, and he's just that brilliant that he can do that. Right, So he sat, happens to be standing there, and he uses this tool to help his disciples understand. So we don't need a fig tree to get what he's saying here. Right Now, in the front of my house, in the parsonage, uh, Journey, my daughter and I, planted some bulbs a few years back. And, and so what's interesting about those flowers, this is my first experience planting bulbs, because there's no fall and winter in Florida to plant them. So uh, I was like, this will be fun. So we planted some bulbs in the fall. And, and of course, all winter, they just lay dormant, right? And so you know they respond to the changing of seasons. So you know that spring is beginning to happen because you start to see the little bulbs come up. And, and it's one of my favorite times of the year. I love the fall because of the colors, and I love the spring because of the colors. You drive down the highway, and there's uh, daffodils are the first ones to come up, right? Am I saying the right one? I think that the yellow ones, yeah. The daffodils are the first ones to come up. And so you begin to know uh, that, that spring is on its way. It's, it's one sign of spring, right? The, the flowers bloom. But that, that one flower starting to come up isn't the only thing we look for to tell us that it's spring. Uh, there's all kinds of other things. And, and it's when all of those things that are uh, sort of put together, we really know that spring and then summer is near. But this happens to me every year. It probably happens to you. And, and this is where the metaphor gets a little bit thin. But uh, around the, the time when all the signs of spring start to be there, it's almost like there's one day where you just kind of walk outside and it's summer. Like, oh, I get it's here, right? So like you've been seeing the signs, but then suddenly there it is. It, it kind of catches us off guard a little bit, but all the signs have been there, and then just one day it's just kind of fully there. Well, this is kind of what Jesus is saying here when, he, when he's coming back. This is what he's teaching us about how to look for his coming back. Look at verse 33 again. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. The gates meaning like at the gates of the city. He's close. There he is. So the lesson from the fig tree is this. We'll know Jesus' return is near like we know the changing of the seasons. 
right? We know it's about to be spring and then summer. My wife is constantly telling me, hey, be present in the moment. Stop talking about in a few months it's going to be hot again. And then when it's summer, I'm like, Christmas, I can't wait, right? <laughs> I'm always like months ahead, and she's like, chill out and just be in the moment. So in the text, what are the these things that Jesus mentions? When you see all of these things, what's he talking about? Well, those are the things he mentions in the verses right before the passage we're in this morning. So again, if you want to do a study on this, let us know uh, so that we can do that. And Bob and I can do that as we plan and prepare the class. But also just go back and read um, the whole chapter of Matthew 24 and just see all that technically correct apocalyptic language that's there, right? All that stuff that's going to happen. But what's important for us to look at this morning are Jesus' words about trying to figure out when he's coming. So let me show you that in verses 36 to 39. So he says, okay, you want to know the broad scope of it? It's like the changing of the seasons. And then he says this, but concerning the day and the hour, so the exact moment, concerning the day and the hour, and I want this, I hope this pops in your head next time you see some end times predictions. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, how that works in the Trinity, I have no idea. They're one, they're separate, they know, he knows everything the Father knows, the Father is in me, but he doesn't know this one. So I don't know how that works. And then he says this, verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does he mean? It happened just suddenly. Right? For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's he saying? People are going to ignore the signs. Right? Noah was building the ark for a long time. But then the deluge happened, and they were all surprised. And that's how the coming is going to be. So the actual moment of Jesus' return is going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be sudden. We'll know it's coming like the changing of the seasons, but the actual moment will be sudden and unexpected. So we're not supposed to be trying to figure out when the exact moment is, right? There's no, like, nobody should be getting the end times calculator app on their phone and like, well, if this date lines up with this, then it's going to be, because people have been doing that for a long time. And then every time they're wrong, oh, well, I missed this thing, and now it's going to be six months out, and I just wrote a new book. You should get it, right? That's not for us to know. Everything you need to know is in here. And Jesus just said, no one knows this one. I would even go so far to argue that if you live your life trying to figure out the exact moment, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your discipleship to Jesus because that's not for you to worry about. We're not supposed to be trying to figure out when Jesus will return, but we need to be always ready because what? He is returning and we're closer every minute. That part we know. He is coming and we're closer every minute. And we are seeing some of the signs. And so as, Christian, our jo- as Christians, our job is to walk with Jesus, listen to his voice, be aware of the signs, but also know that we have no clue in the actual days, so just let that one go. We need to just be ready. So that's the first question. What do we do with those end times things? Well, we do our best, but we humbly say, I don't know the exact moment or hour. I'm just going to be ready. So here's the second question. Another thing we need to be sure we understand is who exactly this King Jesus is who's returning. It's not going to be a baby. We like to make light of Jesus. We like to make him just kind of like a fairy tale figure, right? 
A lot, a lot of kids that I talk to, that's how they kind of view Jesus, fairy tale figure. And I've heard many parents over the years be concerned, well, I don't want to do the Easter Bunny, I don't want to do Santa, because if I do that, then they won't believe me about Jesus. And I get that, but at the same time, hopefully, your kids are going to see you interacting with the king of the universe, Jesus, a little differently than they see you interacting with Santa. Like, I'm not going to a gathering every week and giving my money and my time and my passion and my desire to Santa Claus. So, so it's in a different category, right? Jesus is in a different category, but many of us tend to put him in that accidentally in that category of kind of a fairy tale figure. And he just kind of loves everyone and sprinkles love dust everywhere. But that's not the fullness of who Jesus is. He does love you. But he's also full of wrath towards sin. We have to do something with it. This is Revelation 19. This is a picture of the Jesus who is returning. These are John's words. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Like, what a chipper, happy passage, right? This is the King Jesus that's returning, and, and there is poetic language here, right? This is literally apocalyptic literature. So, so it doesn't mean that it's literally everything exactly like that is a literal interpretation, but what we take away from that is, that's kind of scary sounding, right? It is. Like if they made that into a movie scene, it'd be rough. Jesus is not just some soft-spoken guy who just loves everybody with no accountability, no authority, because that's not true love. He is the just king of the universe. And as we said, as the old creed says, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so the Jesus of the Bible is way more frightening in some of his parts than we like to think. He's way more scary in this kind of picture of him than we like to think. And so to understand who this Jesus is, is to make it all the more amazing <clears throat> that this Jesus would die for us. Right? He's not a different Jesus. This is the same Jesus. He is king. He doesn't have to do any of the things he did. And yet, because of his love for us and for the glory of the Father, he didn't just let us get what we deserve. He didn't just let us get what we deserve in our sin. You see, the Bible is clear that God hates sin. 
He hates it because it destroys what he's created. Over and over in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we see that God is filled with burning anger at sin. The Bible says he's filled with rage at sin. He wants to stomp sin out until it is gone, right? That's scary. That's graphic. That rubs the wrong way to our Western ears. We don't like that, but that's God. The truth is, that all that anger, what we need to take away from that as Christians is that all that anger and wrath was rightly pointed at each one of us until Jesus stepped in between us and God and bore the wrath that we deserved. So the cross is that same burning anger, rage, wrath played out in the New Testament. You want to know how God feels about sin? You look to the cross. You should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross. And God rightly poured his wrath out and Jesus satisfied all of that. So as scary as Revelation Jesus is, that's the same Jesus who loves you enough to have died for you and to be raised for you so that you might live in the new resurrection life. And so if that scary, awesome Jesus loves you enough to die for you, then what in the world do you have to be afraid of? Right? Make that connection. This King Jesus with his robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth loves you and died for you. So who can you be afraid of? No one. And so this confidence in Jesus loving us drives how we live now. It is the love of Christ that compels us. It compels us to what? Share the good news of his kingdom that's coming with everyone. So then to wrap this up, let's, let's figure out this last question together. Let's, let's work on it. How should we live in light of these two truths? So for this, we're going to jump to 2 Peter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Second <clears throat> Peter 3, verse 1. This is the Apostle Peter, obviously. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. That's your identity, beloved. That's you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we see from these verses in Peter that, who's Peter talking to? Beloved, that's Christians, that's the church. Right, he's writing to a specific church, yes, but because of inspiration, that's for all Christians over all time, all the beloved of God. He's talking to those who've been taught the things of God. So this is for us. Right? Of course, anyone is gladly welcome to listen in to the word of God, but this particular section, Peter explicitly says, this is for you, church. And so let's keep going, verse 3. Knowing first, so church, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what's he saying? It's no surprise to us that people would mock us for believing that Jesus is returning. Like, unless the Holy Spirit awakens your heart and mind to it, it does sound weird, doesn't it? Oh, it's fine. Yeah, you don't believe in a historical Jesus, but you know what? That's okay. We believe that Jesus is coming back on a white horse out of the clouds with a sword coming out of his mouth. So that'll make the case for you, right? It is strange. It's peculiar, and it should be no surprise to us that people scoff at it, that they would mock at it. But we need to have compassion on people who do that, and you know why? Look at why they do that. 
They're following their own sinful desires. They're doing exactly what you and I did before we came to know and love Jesus. Colossians 1 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, those who would mock our faith, we must be compassionate to. They're doing that out of their own evil desires, the same evil desires we walked in before Christ rescued us. We need to continually show Jesus to them in their mocking as an opportunity to show the love of Christ to people. Right? What did Jesus say? Blessed are you when people say all kinds of evil about you on, on my name's sake, for my name's sake. It's the same thing. Peter's saying, don't be surprised at it. Scoffers are going to scoff, right? As we would say, haters are going to hate. That's what they do. Let's keep going. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. This is willful unbelief. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter is using two examples from creation to show that God does do things in creation, right? He's saying, uh, he talks about creation and the flood of Noah as examples of when God does miraculous things. So he's essentially saying, if you want to act like God isn't going to come back, you can do that. But look what God has done before. P Peter's writing to a group of people who are living in a culture that's beginning to doubt that there's anything beyond what they can see, which is pretty familiar territory. First Peter and our lives are pretty good parallels. Verse 8, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved. So, so what do they do? They deliberately overlook facts, but you don't overlook this fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Right? This is the patient but urgent thing. One day might as well be a thousand years to God because he doesn't exist in time like you and I do. And I'm beginning to get to the age where it feels like a thousand years is going to happen in one day. Because I'm blinking and children are not babies anymore. And like, what happened, right? He says, don't overlook this fact that the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. This is so vital for us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But what is patient towards you, church? Me, patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, so this part is where it's so important to remember who Peter is talking about. It's talking to Christians, to the church. So now he tells us that God doesn't exist in time like we do. He's telling us that God's not limited to time like we are. And so when we think, oh, well, it's probably going to be a long way off, it might be right now because there's no such thing as the future or the past with God. He just is. He exists already in the future, right? So, so if in the future you get there and it's not what you thought it was going to be, just remember that God that exists in the future is the same God who was good in the past when the good times were. He's the same. And he exists in all those places. He just is. So because there's no future or past for God like there is for us, Peter reminds us that God's not being slow in returning. He's basically like, you're just counting wrong. God's not slow in returning 
But in fact, he's being patient with us. He's being patient with us Christians, patient with us, the church, because he wants all to reach repentance. And what is the way that people reach repentance? Through the church. And we covered this when we talked about the church. That is how God has chosen to do it. He has not chosen to write it in the sky so that everyone can just see it. That day will come. But how he's chosen to do it is through his people. And so he's patient with us, wanting no one to perish. God is patient with us that we would show our faith and share the gospel with those around us who so desperately need to hear the good news of this King Jesus. God hasn't forgotten about his promises. He's holding off for the sake of that person in your life who you're thinking of right now, hopefully, who is far from God, but close to you that God wants to reach. He wants them to come to repentance. And he's patient with you before he returns to give everybody the chance that he has deemed that they can have. So he's patient with us so that more of the people we know can come to know him before he does return and keep all of his promises. Because he will. He goes on in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in, the, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter continues this passage by again reminding us that Jesus' return is real. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen suddenly and unexpectedly. I don't know if you... I'm kind of opening myself up here, but I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I've had two or three occasions where I've had a very vivid dream of this moment when Jesus returns. Now, my dream is probably, you know, colored by all kinds of weird Western American Christian things, but I've had this moment where I've had what I would maybe say is a vision, right? Where I've had a dream and it's, I'm sitting there and I hear what sounds like a trumpet and it, it's happening and I think to myself in the dream like, oh my gosh, this is it. And, and that's how you respond when something happens unexpectedly, right? Like, oh, it's happening. And so Peter continues this passage by, by emphasizing that. But he gives us a great charge to ponder, I think, as we go out this morning. Here's what, here's what Pastor Peter wants us to know about this. Since these things are true, we should be a holy, godly people who pursue Jesus and who even, and I don't know how this works either, quicken the day that Jesus comes back by the fact that we're constantly sharing our faith with those around us, that we're participating in God's global mission through the Alliance and other means, that we're part of what God is doing to set all things right and make his kingdom come about. And so we're to be a people who have our hopes set not on this world, but on the promises that God has made to us, knowing that he is going to return and set all things right. And he's going to make a new earth where there won't be anything but ever-increasing joy in his presence. So here's four things that we need to be. In light of that, here's four sort of ways to live, four, four calls for us. The first is that we are to be a holy people. Be holy, he says. We don't cave to the moral decay of our time. We don't cave to the moral decay of our time. And, and what that means for each of us individually 
is that sin that you don't really want to deal with. That's the one that I, I want to call you to. Not the one that's easy to point out in everybody else. Well, the culture is doing this or that. Yeah, but what about our greed? What about our consumerism? What about our insidious little things? What about, uh, you know, what about gluttony? What about all these things where I am not living a holy life? Peter's saying, in light of the coming of Jesus, live a holy life. The word holy means to be set apart, and we're supposed to be a people who are set apart by God and who live a very different life, a very different life based on a very different set of kingdom values. So be holy. Second, we're godly. He calls us to godliness or godlikeness in our character. And the simplest way to summarize this is the fruit of the Spirit. That we are to be, in light of the return of Jesus, we are meant to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which we can sum up by love, joy, and peace, which stand in contrast to so much around us, right? Love, joy, and peace is not how I would describe much of what's going on. Third, expectant. We're living with an urgency. Not impatience, but urgency. There is a difference. We're living with the urgency of knowing that God is being patient with us in order that others might come to him. God, God, another way to look at it, God is being patient with us in order that all these seats that are right now empty would be filled with a person who has a soul who comes to know and love Jesus and is walking in community. Right? Let, let, to get it down to just our level. We, we live expectant lives, urgent lives. And then lastly, we live hopeful. We are not a people marked by fear. We are a people marked by hope. Hope in the kingdom that's coming, not fear in the failings and the flaws of the empires of this world. We're not thrown off course when things don't go one way or the other. We're not thrown off course when, you know, politics goes this way and the economy goes this way and this goes that way. We're a hope-filled people because we know we have a kingdom that's coming for us. And we're inviting everybody to come, to come with us. This is why at the end of every week, when we're done with our communion, we remind ourselves of this simple and yet profound mystery, right? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And what? Christ will come again. And in seven days, we're going to remind ourselves again. In seven more days, we're going to remind ourselves again. Because that is the bedrock of our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time to, to really think about and emphasize and, uh, as the series says, reawaken, be, be made aware once again of the reality that you are returning. Would you help us to live with that reality constantly before us when we're at the checkout line, when we're in the drive-thru, when we're at the bank, when we're late for work, when we're not late for work, but our coworkers late for work. Would you help us to remember that you're returning? And that you're patient with us, wanting all of those people around us every day to come to repentance in you. In the same way that we came to repentance. And we know that it was your kindness through others that led us to that. And so would you make us a people who are kind, who are holy, who are godly, who are expectant, and who are filled with hope in your coming. Jesus, we pray the prayer of the saints at the end of our Bible Come, Lord Jesus. We, we want you. And yet we find ourselves here, and so we're going to do what you've called us to do. We pray that you would bring glory to yourself through our lives and that you would call others to yourself through them as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.
Why don't you stand? And uh, we're just going to close our time with a benediction this morning. And those of you joining us online, we're glad you were with us today. Um, and so we are going to uh, leave you and, and take communion together in this room. Got a couple little updates to give you. And so let me speak this benediction over you. And then we will take a couple minutes and have communion together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. 